you knew it would come to this. Thrift Savings Plan participants are suing the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board and its record-keeping contractor, Accenture Federal Services. Several participants filed a class action lawsuit claiming that the board and Accenture botched TSP's major systems update last summer, causing serious damage to hundreds, if not thousands, of participants. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman is here with more. And I guess we should start out by saying, Drew, nobody lost any of their investment in TSP. Nobody's money went down the drain. Fair to say? That's right. The board has said that everything balanced out to the penny, and a lot of the issues were more having to do with the rollout of that new system last summer. That was the culmination of multiple years of this big IT modernization project that the TSP had, where they were looking at ways to update customer service technology, update cybersecurity, and then on the front end, update the My Account platform, add a mobile app, add mutual fund options for participants. So there was this really big project underway. And what happened last summer was that you know, basically, at the time of the rollout, a lot of people were having technical issues, even trying to set up a new account in the new system. And there was a lot of missing information. They weren't able to name a beneficiary. A lot of different problems combined, and that ultimately led to a really severe spike in the calls to the customer service center, which caused a lot more frustrations and delays of actually getting this resolved. So it was a huge annoyance, but not a financial loss, but maybe some people had trouble timing things or making their changes that they wanted to do, which I guess you could construe as loss if you didn't get in on a rising fund or get out of a losing fund or something. So what do the participants say are the damages that they're suing for? That is kind of the crux of the lawsuit. It's not necessarily the the tech issues themselves, but really the the outcome of what those tech issues created for several participants. It really comes down to those who were looking to take out loans, withdrawals, or death benefits during the first couple of months after the update. Because of all the tech issues, it really came back to a lot of processing delays. So participants who wanted to take out a loan, who wanted to get, you know, even for example, a hardship loan, so they needed to get money out right away, they weren't able to. And the the lawsuit is saying that this impacted hundreds, if not thousands, of TSP participants. And, you know, a lot of them were left with trying to turn to other options outside TSP, taking on higher interest rates, and uh, in some cases losing a lot of money when these things were really, really time sensitive. So in other words, you might characterize it as an opportunity cost, they say, is what they incurred because of these ill-executed changes? That's right. And the, the board has said, and they have repeated very frequently that in the back end, everything functioned very smoothly, even though from the participant perspective, of course, there were a lot of frustrations, a lot of concerns with the way that transition really happened. On the back end, as you said, there weren't any issues with balancing the numbers in the account. All the data was there and transferred uh, perfectly. So that that was at least the, the benefit of that project taking place. Yeah, so everybody's money was in the bank, but the bank was closed, in effect, right. by these changes. All right. And what else have participants done here? What other responses have there been besides this lawsuit, which is only a handful of people, correct? Correct. The lawsuit was filed by seven TSP participants, but they're trying to get... Are they TSP millionaires? <laughs> it's, it's hard to say, but... Um, 
I think this is just the latest step in a long line of actions that participants have been taking a lot. For example, called to their representatives in Congress, and it's gained a lot of attention, all these issues from D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, Representative Abigail Spamberger, and a lot of other lawmakers in the DMV area. And that ultimately led to the Government Accountability Office agreeing to do a report on how this rollout went. That is still that work is still underway, but GAO has said they'll finish that audit of the record keeper transition in early 2024. And what are they seeking? Liquidated damages? Do they want liquidation of Accenture? I mean, what are they trying to get here? They're seeking damages from the FRTIB and from Accenture. And they're also asking for both the board and the contractor to basically say, admit that it was their fault and, that, and take the responsibility for the damages that did occur. And how have the board and Accenture responded? I mean, they have made progress since the initial rollout. I mean, it wasn't a secret that this thing wasn't working very well. No. After several months, the board and Accenture, they said that they were working very hard to fix some of those initial issues. Accenture actually came out and at a board meeting last year, after a couple of months, apologized for the way that the rollout went. So they were very apologetic and and aware of how difficult the rollout was. But there have been a lot of improvements. For example, they staffed up significantly in their call center called Thriftline, and they're going to do continuous training for those employees. They've also made some updates to the way my account uh, functions, and it's something that they're going to continue making updates as they get feedback from TSP participants. All right. So this lawsuit has been filed where and what happens next? This could take years. It could take years. It, they're asking the law firms that are involved are asking those participants who were affected to reach out to an attorney if they believe that they are part of this class that was filed. But of course, they would eventually need to get class certification. So it might be a while before we see any movement on this. It could take years for this to, to develop. So they're shopping for victims, you might say, which is something <laughs> law firms are pretty good at. Exactly. So, you know, if their guess is correct, and we could we could see hundreds, if not thousands of people come forward about this, but that's all, you know, that's really up in the air and a big question mark right now. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.